If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41. In a moment, I'm going to read verse 10 in Isaiah 41 as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled, A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. Boy, we live in uncertain times, don't we? I think of just this calendar year alone. I remember beginning the year worried about fires in Australia as we celebrated the new year. Uh, It wasn't long into our year before our president was impeached by the House of Representatives, and we had an impeachment trial in the Senate uh, that last Sunday in January. I remember getting home from church and hearing that Kobe Bryant and his daughter had been killed in a helicopter crash, and all that was before the global pandemic. Of course, millions of people have been affected all across the world. The stock market has gone down, unemployment has gone up, people fearful for their jobs. We have been in quarantine, and at the time, it seemed awful that we had no movies or museums, no movie theaters, no libraries, no gathering together. I was really upset when we had no March Madness, no NCAA tournament, and the Olympics are postponed, the Masters are postponed, the Kentucky Derby, all of these great events. We were not able to gather for Easter, no Passover meal together, no junior, senior prom, no graduation ceremonies, and all that is real loss, and I thought was really bad, until as we gathered online, we saw videos of people literally dying in the video. We've seen online all sorts of brutality. In response, we have seen protests, most peaceful, some violent, even 17 deaths coming out in the protests. There's been turmoil online. We're having trouble as a nation even speaking to one another. And it is in these uncertain times that I come to you today in Isaiah 41.10, and I have a message from our God, and that message is this, do not fear. <laughs> really? <laughs> Do you see what's going on around us, Lord? When you just have the naked command there, it almost seems insensitive, out of touch. But I can assure you, as we look at the scripture today, you will see that our God is neither insensitive nor out of touch. He's aware intimately not only of the context in which we currently find ourselves, but I want you to know the context of this verse before I read it. In Isaiah, the prophet, God's people have not lived life as he designed it to be lived, and so God sends the prophet Isaiah to correct them, to show them the right way, and they reject the prophet. They reject his preaching. God's people persist in their rebellion, and so God says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. You think Australian fires or looting fires are bad? I'm going to burn the place to the ground. God raises up the Babylonians. You think impeachment is bad? I'm going to topple all your leaders. 
You think rioting, looting, you think those things are hard on a city? God says, I'm going to level Jerusalem. You think quarantine's bad? These folks are going to be prisoners of war, carried off to Babylon for 60 or 70 years. And it's in that context that God comes to his people through the prophet Isaiah, times just as difficult as ours, and God says to his people, Isaiah 41 and verse 10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Pray with me as we come to God's word together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we hear these words and in the context in which we find ourselves, if we're honest, they almost sound insensitive or out of touch. Lord, show us now that these words are, are not insensitive or out of touch. I pray that you would so work in our hearts that your people would see you so clearly that we would not be afraid, that you would be bigger for us than anything around us. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do that, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. God commands us not to fear. It's a hard thing for us to hear. But I want you to know in the Bible, there are always reasons for God's commands. If God commands us to do something, there are good reasons to do it. And the power to obey those commands comes from understanding and believing those reasons he gives for the commands. So I want you to know, God comes to you today in his word, not just with commands, but my prayer has been that you see the reasons God gives for these commands so that as we understand and believe these reasons, we might have God-given power. To not be afraid in the world in which we live. So let, let's just look at that. Look at verse 10. You see the commands. It jumps out at us. Verse 10. So do not fear is the command. God says again in the next line, do not be dismayed. That is a word that, uh, that means uh, that we would not have darting glances this way and that way in an anxious way as if we're looking in all directions for what could harm us or we're looking in all directions uh, for the right path. God is saying, you don't have to do that. I'm going to relieve you of that. Why? What are the reasons for this command? Because by seeing and believing these reasons, we're empowered to not be afraid. So for that one command, do not be afraid. God gives 10 reasons that we're going to look at together today. Five right here in verse 10, and then five in the verses that precede. 
So let's look at those together now. First, in verse 10, do you see why he says not to be afraid? So do not fear, number one, for I am with you. Listen to me. In these difficult times, you are not alone. God is with you. Number two, he says, be not dismayed, for I am your God. Now, that doesn't help much if you don't know who this God is. But in this polytheistic world, the way it worked is if you wanted to have children, you wanted to produce crops, then you had to go serve the fertility God so he would grant you that. And so even if you're a farmer and you serve this fertility God, if you're going to go on a trip or go on the seas, you're not in with the God of the ocean. And so you had reason to fear everything outside the God that you serve. But when God says, I am your God, the God of the universe is your God. The God who is over fertility, the God who is over the seas, the God who is over and above all things is your God. There's nothing that he doesn't control so we don't have to fear because that's who our God is. Number three, God says, I will strengthen you. Listen, God will give his people the strength that they need to face the things that he has for us to face. That's why we don't have to be afraid. Number four, God says, I will strengthen you and I will help you. When you are in need, God will be there to help you so we don't have to be afraid. Number five, God says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The right hand, that's the dominant hand, the strongest hand. Our hand is what we take action with. God is saying, I will take action, not just his right hand, not just his power, but power in righteousness. I will use my power, my right hand, to do the right thing in all circumstances so we don't have to be afraid. So five reasons right here in verse 10. But I want you to see this God who's, who makes these promises to us, that he gives us a foundation in the previous verses of who he is, that makes these promises even stronger for us. It intensifies them for us. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of the chapter. I want you to see five foundations of who this God is that makes these promises to you so that we're strengthened and empowered as we understand and believe God is who he says he is. We have power not to be afraid in difficult times. So what are these five foundations of who God is? Number one, God is the judge of all nations and races. Look at verse one. God is speaking. He says, be silent before me, you islands. That's the people farthest away. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Now here in verse 1, when God talks about judgment, he's not talking about judgment at the end of all things. He's talking about judgment within a courtroom. You see that clearly down in verse 21 where he says, Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. Here's the scenario in verse 1. God is challenging the nations to decide 
who to put their trust in, and he wants them to consider based on evidence. So God calls the nations to be silent as he presents the evidence of his power, and he invites them to present their evidence as to whether their idols are worthy of trust so people can make a decision as to who is God and who they should serve. That's the picture. And I want you to notice that God calls the nations to renew their own strength. You see that there in verse 1? He says, let the nations renew their strength. And if you were with us last week, that phrase is familiar to us. Because the verse right before this, Isaiah 40 in verse 31, we've just been told, but, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And now God is saying, let the nations renew their strength as they come forward and have this debate and bring evidence as to who should be trusted as God. So God's calling the nations to renew their strength and to see how that matches up with the strength that God gives to his people who hope in him. That's the picture that we're looking at. A few applications as we see this God who is the judge of all nations and races. Number one, for God's people... Our hope is in God and not in ourselves. It is not in our own strength. Very clear, God is comparing the strength of people to the strength of himself and calling us to hope in him so that our strength would be renewed. Number two, as the people of God, we should not be afraid to engage our culture and the nations around us with evidence of who God is. In these times, let's not retreat from the culture. That is the temptation. But the biblical pattern is to engage the culture with evidence of who God is. And even as we do, we are a people who speak the truth in love. We are people characterized by grace and by truth. Now, for some of us, that means we need to learn more about what the truth is so that we even have something to speak into the culture. I want you to know as a leadership, we are working on a curriculum to help folks be more mature in understanding what the Bible says. We're working on that right now. So for some of us, we need to learn more truth. For some of us, we know some truth, and we need to grow in grace. We need to learn to speak the truth in love. A few weeks ago, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Read the last two or three verses of that chapter where it says that we as the church are to be kind to everyone, correcting our opponents with gentleness, patiently enduring evil. Correcting with gentleness so that folks would come to their senses and so that God would lead them to repentance. You see, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's our speaking the truth in love, being people of grace and truth that leads people to repentance. You want to see the world change? We've got to learn to speak the truth in love. For some of us, we're articulating the truth, but we're saying it in a way that people can't hear us because we're not kind to everyone. We're not correcting with gentleness. 
Oh, may Redeemer Church be a place where we learn to speak the truth in love. Third application here, notice. God is not only offering the hope of renewed strength to one group of people. In Isaiah 40, in verse 31, he said, but anyone who hopes in the Lord will renew their strength. And when you compare that to this offer that God is making the nations, that they can look to their own strength or they can look to his, that means God is offering all nations, and here we go, let's, wait, let's just wait on into it, all nations, the word ethne, all races, his renewed strength that comes from hoping in him. God wants all people from all nations and races to enjoy his goodness. We saw it last week in Isaiah 40 in verse 5 where we read that when the true king comes to make all things new, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind will see it. It's always been God's plan to have people from all races in his family and in heaven worshiping him, forgetting at least as far back as Genesis 12 with Abraham, who he blesses so that he would be a blessing and would reach the nations through this one group of people. It's why Jesus in Matthew 28, the resurrected Christ, says, All authority in heaven has been given to me, therefore go make disciples of all nations. The word ethne, ethnic groups, all races. And as we look to where all of history is going at the end of all things, Revelation 7 and verse 9, we see in the Apostle John's vision of heaven, of the future, that people from every tribe and nation and people group, all races worshiping God around the throne. We work for people of all races to come together. And we do that because we want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We want his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And that is why racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. Because we want God's kingdom to come, and we want his will to be done in heaven. And what he wants and what he's doing is he is building a family, a people for himself, a pan-national, multi-ethnic, multi-racial people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group who are his family. And watch this. Let me push a little more. And he's using us to do that. It's the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. It's an important point for us to remember today. Because, listen to me now, there are people in our culture protesting in the streets. And on some level, not in all respects, but in some level they're protesting because they agree with the position that we have as a church. They agree with the position that is in God's word. And my goodness, whenever we can agree with the culture, let's find points that we can agree. We finally agree on something. Not in every respect, but as Bible-believing Christians, we are for racial equality and justice. 
Because God is building a family of all races and he is using us to do it. So that's why we're for racial equality. It's why we're against racism in all its forms. It's why we condemn white supremacy. It's why we reject any valuing of one race over others as sin because it is contrary to the kingdom that God is using us to build. God is forming a people That's the church, and he's forming us to reach the nations. He's using us to be salt and light in a culture. He has a people that he's drawn to himself in order to reach more people of different races and ethnic groups. We saw it last week in Isaiah 40. Remember the herald says, prepare the way for the Lord, And we saw how when the true king is he's on his way, that every valley is going to be made low, that every mountain is being raised up. And we said, look, these are not just the usual cosmetic changes, that there are major renovations, that usually you just built a bridge over valleys, but now the valleys are going to be raised up, that usually you just widen mountain passes, but now the mountains are going to be brought low. And and listen, who does that work? The herald is calling those who are loyal to the king to prepare the way for the king. We prepare the way for God's kingdom. Here in Isaiah 41, Isaiah uses the same imagery to show that it is God's plan to use his people to accomplish these purposes. Look at verses 14 through 16. God says to his people, Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Do you hear what he's saying there? That God uses his people to prepare the way for the king to come back and make all things new. Oh, Lord, we're so (laughs) inadequate for the job. Are you sure you don't want to just call somebody else? In verse 14, God acknowledges we are an inadequate worm. But with God's help, we become a threshing sledge. And I don't mean just any old worn out threshing sledge. I'm talking about a sharp new one that gets the job done. That's why this is such an important issue for us today, because if we don't stand for racial equality and justice, if we're not willing to say that we as a church condemn white supremacy and reject any valuing of one race over others, it cuts against the work that God calls us to do, which is to build a worldwide, pan-national, multi-racial, multi-ethnic group for the glory of God. And I think if we're honest, we have to confess we have failed at this in the past. I appreciated Mark's prayer in this regard. You'll be hearing more from us 
in the future on this. But I think it's important that we're open and honest and own the ways and vocal about the ways that we have fallen short. We have been worms, but God wants to make us a threshing sledge. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, Paul in the New Testament says it like this. He says, we have this treasure, talking about the glory of God and the gospel, the thing that changes the hearts of men, the thing that heals us of sin, the only thing that has hope for our world. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So God uses a worm to thrash every obstacle to the glory of God and our coming King. So let me ask you, what are you doing to thrash every obstacle to the glory of God? It's our calling. Second, as you work to make the world a better place, are you doing it in the strength that God gives? Do you look to him for strength and do you do it for his glory? Let me press on the text. There's a second foundation of who this God is that tells us why we should not be afraid. And the second thing is this, God is king of all kings. He's the king of all kings. Look at verses 2 and 3. God is speaking, and he asks the question, Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and seduces kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. What's going on? What is God saying? God's asking the question, hey, in this presenting of evidence in this court of law as we weigh what the truth is and search for the truth, God asks the question, who's in control of all things? Remember, in response to his rebellious people, he has raised up the Babylonians so that they will come in and ransack the city and carry his people off into exile. But right here, when he says, who has stirred up one from the east... He doesn't name him specifically, but Isaiah 45 identifies this one as Cyrus. God's going to raise up Cyrus the Persian so to come in and conquer the Babylonians, and that will allow God's people to return from exile 60 or 70 years later. That's a lot of history. What's Isaiah saying? Here's what he's saying. You ready for my paraphrase? Isaiah's saying, dude, God is like two moves ahead of you. All right? So you don't have to worry. You don't have to fear because God rules the rulers of all nations. He controls the affairs of men and nations for his purposes. He controls the rising and the falling of the nations because this God is the king of kings. So what? What difference does that make? Number one, it means we don't have to be afraid because God's two moves ahead. Number two, it means that our God works in real time and space in the events of this world to accomplish his purposes. Listen, he is not distant. He does not slumber or sleep as Mark prayed, paraphrasing the Psalms. 
look how active God is in this text. He says he's the one who stirred up one from the east, a a, a pagan ruler in Cyrus who doesn't serve the Lord. God's the one who called someone unrighteous to serve him in righteous service. God hands nations over to him. God subdues kings. God is so active. His hand is on the wheel directing the affairs of history in the direction that God wants them to go. Think about that. Keep going. Apply it to today. That means even in this crazy context where we find ourselves, things so out of control, God is using even secular brutality to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Even though things look out of control to us, and they are out of our control, they are merely tools in the hands of our God, who is using them for his glory and for our good. Notice I I didn't say he was using them for our comfort. He's using them for our good, for our growth in holiness, so that we would grow in our hoping in and trusting in the one true God. In fact, if you are comfortable right now, I don't think you're doing it the right way. God uses our discomfort to lead us to change. I loved Mark's prayer because he was praying, Lord, show us what it is that you want us to change. We want to hear what you have to say to us. Listen, God's not acting in history for our comfort and convenience, but he is working for our good, Romans 8, 28, so that we would trust him more and walk in his ways more closely. I learned this on a much smaller level Many years ago, early in my ministry, there was a person who just seemed to be a thorn in my side. I'm sure my views exaggerated. I almost felt oppressed by this person. And I would pray to the Lord, please remove this thorn from my flesh. And he never seemed to. And I understand his grace is sufficient for me. I talked to other ministers who gave me advice, things to do things to learn, strategies to try. Nothing seemed to get better. Finally, a ministry minister friend of mine said, hey, you know what? I think maybe you need to quit focusing on the horizontal of what's going on out here and what that person's doing. And maybe you need to focus more on the vertical to see what God has for you to learn in this. <laughs> in fact, what, exactly what he said was, I think you need to pray that you would learn what God has for you to learn so that He can relieve you of this thorn that's in your flesh. And I learned so much during that time. And God did grant me in his grace relief. And I believe that on a small scale is what God is showing us now. That even in the text, in the midst of Babylonian brutality against God's people, God wanted his people to see that he was at work. And in the midst of the chaos caused by Cyrus and the Persians, God wanted his people to see that he was the one at work. And listen to me, now, in the midst of the brutality and chaos that we face today, God, through his word, wants you to see that he is at work. So you don't have to be afraid. Instead, let me suggest 
that we don't focus so much on what they out there are doing in the horizontal. Now, I'm not saying don't look, don't pay attention. I'm saying let's not focus there. Let's focus on God and see what he has for us to learn during this time. And in order to help you do that, I just want to give you two passages of Scripture that I think will help us in that regard. Number one, James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. James 1, colon, 19-20. And here's what God says to his people there. He says, everybody, we all, everyone, brothers and sisters, he says, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And he doesn't just give commands, he tells why. Verse 20, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I think that's good advice for us at this point. That we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry in hopes that the righteousness God wants to produce would come. That's one verse I want to give you, the second one. Psalm 139, those last two verses, verses 23 and 24. The whole psalm is great. You ought to go there. It's fantastic. God reassuring his people that he's with them, that he goes before them, that he's behind them, that all the days ordained for them were written his book before one came to be, that he knit us together in the womb like, like Lee prayed in our opening prayer. But those last two verses, based on all that, then the psalmist says this. He says, oh Lord, search me. Know my heart. Test me to see if there are any anxious thoughts in me. Show me if there's any offensive way in me so that I can walk in your way everlasting. So if James 1.19 is the first thing we're going to do, we're going to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. The second thing I think would be to pray to focus more on the vertical than the horizontal and say, God, what is in me that I need to confess? What's in me that's offensive? What's in me that I need to to confess and turn from at this time? The third foundation for our not being afraid, number three, God is the eternal creator of all people and nations. You see it there in verse four. God asked the question, who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. We don't have to be afraid because our God is the God who called all things into existence at the very beginning. He's the one that set human events in motion. It's his hand that is in all that is happening along the way. And our God will be there in the end when everything is done and accomplished according to his eternal purpose. So we don't have to be afraid. Because our God is the one and only God. The one who's ruling every bit of history from the first to the last. Think about the implications of that with me. That means that it is no accident that you live in this place at this time. Acts 17 says that specifically. That means that it is no accident that you are hearing this sermon right now. That means... 
that God is at work. And it's no accident that we are where we are. Before you were born, God planned this moment in your life, and now God is calling you to hope in Him and to discover the life He created for you to live now and for all eternity. We want to walk that journey along with you here at Redeemer Church. Because at Redeemer Church, our mission, the reason we exist, is to be used of God in helping people become what they were created to be through a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with the Lord Jesus. So we would love to walk with you on this journey. But I want to warn you, because the text here in these next two verses has a warning. The text tells us that what people often do at this point, it's hard for us to abandon everything to God and to place our hope and our trust in Him. And so what people have a tendency to do, I'm going to warn you, What people have a tendency to do is to run to gods of their own making, to run to other things besides the true God and look to those things to give us purpose and meaning and security because we can control those things when in reality those things can only be found in the living God. Watch out. The temptation is not to give up control but to run to a God of your own creating, to serve that God, to create myths, to author your own narrative to give you meaning. And I'm telling you, those things do not ultimately satisfy. Let me show you in the text as we come to this fourth foundation of God's promise. God is the one who turns this upside down world right side up. Look at verses five through seven with the warning. The islands have seen it. They've seen what the Lord has done. And fear the ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith and he smooths with the hammer, spurs him on who strikes the anvil. He says of the welding, it's good. He nails down the idol so it will not topple. Do you see what's going on? God has called these nations to trust in him. He has presented evidence, but people who don't hope in the Lord are afraid. They're afraid to give up their control of life. And in verse 6, they encourage each other to be strong in their own strength. And in verse 7, they respond to God's activity in history by creating gods for themselves. Listen, from a literary standpoint, if you like irony, you're going to love this series in Isaiah. Look at the, the, I see at least three ironic things he points out here in the text. And this idea of God is the God who turns this upside down world right side up. Look at him with me. Number one, you have people who make for themselves gods versus a God who makes for himself a people. It's ironic, isn't it? God's doing all this to draw all these people themselves, and instead of coming into the family, people want to make for themselves gods. That's ironic. There's more irony. Second one. In Genesis 1, God makes people and declares them to be good. Here in Isaiah 41 and verse 7, people make gods and declare them to be good. Did you see that in the text? It's a picture of those who don't trust in God, desperately trying to convince themselves that their self-made gods are really adequate for their needs when they're not. My favorite is this third irony. 
You see, for those who are not hoping in the Lord, it's not the God who strengthens the worshipers, but the worshipers must strengthen their God. Do you see that in verse 7? He nails down the idol so it will not topple. He does this welding work and says it's good. But for those who hope in the Lord, the true king, it's not the people who strengthen their God. Oh, no, our God strengthens his people so that we don't topple over, so that we can run and not grow weary, so that we can walk and not faint. Fifth foundation. This God... This God we've been describing has done everything to make you his. Look at verses 8 and 9. But you, O Israel, my chosen servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners. I called you. I said you were my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear. For I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, friend, don't you see? God longs for you to draw strength from his greatness that he gives you manifold evidence of. He names Cyrus a hundred years before he actually comes. He names him by name. God chooses us. God calls us. He has not rejected us. He is with us. He will strengthen us. He will help us. He will uphold us. He loved us so much that he sent his son to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died so that we can be in this pan-national, multi-racial family that he is building for himself. And he does all this for a people who have sinned against him, who are sinning. And remember, these people have not even confessed and repented their sin yet. I call you to experience the wonder and awe that our sin cannot change our God's love for us. I call you, realize he's done everything necessary to save you before you even decide how to respond to him. That's how gracious he is. So allow this realization to lead you to trust him and not be afraid. So now after seeing these five foundations of who this God is, I call you again. Even in the difficulty of our day, I call you to fear not. Because this God that we just saw five glimpses of has got you. Fear not. This God is with you. He's beside you. You're not alone. Fear not. God is your God. He is over you and over all peoples and nations, so you don't have to be afraid. Fear not. This God will strengthen you from inside of you. Fear not. God will help you from all around you, from whatever side danger approaches, on whatever front you have a need. And fear not. God will uphold you from underneath with his righteous right hand. 
so we don't have to be afraid. Let's pray and ask him to make these truths real to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have brought forth abundant evidence for us to trust you. Thank you that you are near. Thank you that you meet us in your weakness. Thank you for assuring us that our weakness is not surprising to you, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, and that you always will. And I pray as we see this and believe it, we would trust in you more and more, and we'd not be afraid. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.